Welcome to Band Meets Strings, a podcast exploring the string classroom. I'm Patrick Dandrea. And I'm Tiffany O. Ponicelli, and we're both music educators in the California Bay Area. I teach high school string orchestra and symphony orchestra at Gunn High School in Palo Alto. And I teach middle school band, jazz, and orchestra at Harvest Park Middle School in Pleasanton, California. We're here to share and reflect on the challenges, successes, and everything in between in our own classrooms. Tiffany, episode two. Episode two, we've made it. We're still here. <laughs> We're going to start just by doing a, a quick check-in and to see how things are going in, in kind of our school year. Tiffany, what's going on right now? You know, it's a wild year for us. Um, we are taking our chamber orchestra to Midwest. So we are obviously <laughs> in the thick of things. It is currently October 2nd as we're recording. And so we are coming to the realization that Midwest is, uh, you know, really soon. I know you have experience with this too. And also uh, trying to figure out how we're making sure we're serving all of our students over the course of this fall concert season. We have three major concerts in October. Um, and that includes also the premiere of our symphony orchestra. So we're looking forward to it. What about you? Oh my gosh, so many exciting things. And first of all, congratulations on Midwest. It's just Thank you. <laughs> to say it here on the podcast, it, what an incredible, incredible honor. And I know that is a tremendous amount of work having had some experience uh, in the past with some of that. And wow, it's incredible uh, for so many reasons, but it's a lot of work. Uh, for me, I am, we're kind of just in the thick of it. You know, the start of the year has passed. We're just in the weeds of teaching right now. We do an October concert with the three audition groups. So the jazz band, the wind ensemble, and then the string orchestra. And that's happening this upcoming week. So those kids are getting prepped. We did a lot of recording at the end of last week. And I think things are set up to be in a pretty good spot. And the other classes are are trucking along really well. I like to with the, not the sixth graders, but with my strings two group, which is lots of like seventh and eighth graders. Mm -hmm. um, we do like a recording project, so they don't do a proper concert. So we've got some beginning of the year music that they're they're just working and being musical on that we won't perform in a public concert. So we're getting ready to record that. Nice. And yeah, I think things are off to a good start. So today's episode is about getting set up specifically toward posture and position, as well as establishing and reinforcing some work in the left hand. There is so much to do at the start of the year that's just attendance alone at the beginning of the year takes time creating your seating charts and deciding, you know, what's going to work well, especially in the string classroom, starting to build culture, getting instruments ready to get in kids' hands, getting those instruments actually into kids' hands, getting sheet music and method books, doing activities that are not playing music. There's so much you could do. And I think each of those could be an entire episode. But today, we're really just talking about when kids have instruments in their hands and they are ready to begin playing activities, where do we begin? So that's where we're starting from. Let's talk a little bit about posture and position. Um, I know this is different for every single instrument. And Tiffany, you have a lot more experience than I do in this area. So why don't you talk a little bit about how you get your kids set up? Yeah, for sure. And prefacing again that I currently teach high school, Pat currently teaches middle school. I have a little bit of experience with um, fifth grade or beginning strings, but it's not my day to day. I think we can just address some of the general things that we see in the mixed classroom. Starting with upper strings, I think there is definitely a line of thought that they should be standing the whole time. Realistically, a lot of times in a push-in fifth grade classroom, for example, uh, they might be standing because that's the, that's what's in the room. <laughs> um, I personally do have everyone sit uh, all together, but we are always ready to stand up. So I might have my uh, violins and violas stand up partway through the period. Um, if it's a younger class, we might have a code word that like uh, means that you have to stand up when I say cantaloupe or whatever it is. And that's just also keeping them uh, <laughs> on task. Generally speaking, though, um, what I'm thinking about with 
posture and position for upper strings is scroll position. So we're thinking about where is the chin rest actually hitting the chin? I tell them it's not a chin rest, it's a side of jaw rest. Um, we are looking at like, where is the scroll actually angling? You'll see tons of, especially younger students come in with their scroll right in front of their face because they wanna see what's happening with their left hand. We work on bringing that out. Um, we do, uh, and I said younger students, honestly, I have multiple freshmen and sophomores who still play this way as well. We talk about the scroll being parallel to the ground so not too low not too high you'll also get those kids who are playing with their um, scroll in the stratosphere really what's funny about this is the amount of review that happens pat uh, before we started recording said that the beginning of the year is just about review and i think so much of that is true i have kids in sophomore junior year that I, we're, i'm saying the literal same words that i said to them in sixth grade and it's just a good reminder it happens a lot quicker right but that's something that, that i think about a lot at the start of the year Sitting wise, um, especially for upper strings, we are talking about how the butt is going to be in the front half of the chair for everyone, but really for upper strings in particular, there's something about keeping that back straight and making sure that the back is not touching the back of their chair. So we talk about that with kids like, oh, turn around and look at your own butt. And that's hilarious in middle school and high school. But we're looking at to make sure that our butt is not in the back half of the chair. Sometimes if a kid has longer legs, they might be a little bit farther back, but um, especially for middle school, I'm thinking front half of the chair. And then we also um, in establishing that playing position are also establishing what does rest position look like, right? So like we can't, we don't have to sit like this the whole period, but how are we uh, making sure that every time we play, we're setting those things up first. Both feet flat on the ground. That also involves moving cases or backpacks out of the way for feet. Anything else um, that I'm missing there, Pat? Well, it's just really helpful to hear what you get to focus on. And I think you know, you're talking about that review piece. I I always find this is true. The fundamentals don't change, you know, the older you get. They're the, still the For same. Sure. And that I, I love that you're still using the same word tracks. Of course, the older kids with the experience and just the maturity, they can apply that stuff much quicker. Um, so it's not that you're doing it the exact same way, but it's not like you're teaching them that much new information. It's really the same things, just reinforcing them. Absolutely. And what takes 45 minutes in sixth grade takes 30 seconds in, in 10th grade. Totally. Yeah. I So last year I had all my kids sit. This year, I have my violins and violas standing in sixth grade. Nice. Kind of a, a every now and then. I, I wouldn't be all the time. Most of the time when we're starting an activity, I'll have them stand. Honestly, it's really helped me just to see them better because part of it, just the way my room is set up is it's really hard to actually see every kid. It's My room was not designed for music making. Um, and so I've liked that part about it. Um, I also noticed that especially with those younger kids, their posture is just so much worse when they're sitting. So th I think the goal of the standing is when they sit to look like they stand from the waist up. Yeah. Um, I love I love hearing that you have them at the end toward the front of their chair. When I teach band kids, I say your butt can be in two places. We talk about our butts as well. Great. Um, I say your butt can be at the front of your chair or up toward the back of your chair with your back touching the back of the chair. And it's funny, I haven't really noticed it as much with the string classroom, but I think if I had all my kids moving to the front, it would immediately help posture because for most of them, their legs are just an awkward size for the size of the chair in sixth grade, especially. Sandy calls it, my colleague Sandra Lewis calls it perched. So you have to be perched at the edge of your chair Oh yeah. and that uh, and not engaged fully in the chair. I think the idea is that Len, they, it gives them that freedom to move forward and it gives them a lot more bow hand freedom. One thing that you'll see, especially on higher strings for upper strings, is that their their right hand will end up hitting their leg if they're slouched back in their chair. Totally. So the perched thing also makes it so it's a logistic thing. 
I love that word. I immediately know what somebody looks like when they're perching. For sure. Yeah. I think about all, like I've done a bunch of silly things also where like I'll have a stand partner, look at your stand partner and draw the angle of their back as they're playing. Mm. Um, like, like draw what sketch out what that looks like is like, is it a, and then you can add in some math. Is it a right angle? Are you uh, really far leaned back? Um, and then the stand position is something that really affects that as well, where the uh, many of them are playing in what looks more like an orchestra classroom for the first time in middle school. And that also means that they have to figure out how do I share a stand with a partner? How do I um, make sure it's the right height to be able to see? And also that's going to affect their posture and position hugely. We could literally spend days on this in sixth grade. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, I have questions about this, the stand piece yeah. alone. Um, but the other thing that I would add, because my sixth graders, as I mentioned earlier, do have music in fifth mm -hmm. grade, but I treat them like beginners and we have many beginners. So in terms of the steps, what I teach the kids is they stand, they, they hold their instrument in rest position under their right arm gently, and then holding from the, the base of the neck and kind of with their thumb on the back toward the bout, they do Statue of Liberty up in the air and they hold it straight up and then they kind of rotate the instrument and bring the end button to their ear and then they drop that to their shoulder. Oh. And then they slowly bring the side of their chin over. I, I agree that it's not so much a chin rest, it's more of the jaw, and they just nod their head yes. And they do that a couple times, and then they keep it there. And then I take their left hand away, and we all say, look, mom, no hands. And that's that's kind of their like checklist of things. So we will run through that many, many, many times in the first week of those series of steps. And I usually find when kids look awkward, I just say, go through the steps and I see them do the Statue of Liberty and they bring it and then they look correct right after. I see many, many kids, like you said, that look, I say to some kids, it looks like your violin is emerging from your neck. Yeah. That is not what we want when they try and get their fingerboard right in front of their face. And it's so um, funny. There's so many different ways to do it. I think about my series when I taught fourth grade beginning violin uh, as a student teacher, it was uh, position one was right in front of you. And then position two, you stick your arm straight out position three you were bringing it out and then and then you were coming this way and then i'm also always concerned about the tension with the neck right so like i like your nod thing what i'm worried about is also their shoulder raising in order to um like trap their violin or viola there and so we do talk about how the left hand should be able to drop but then what that sometimes causes shoulder tension so finding ways to like make sure that they're relaxed and this is not to say that like by teaching this it's going to get better in any way <laughs> over time like i still have kids in high school who are super super high tension shoulder people um sometimes you'll see if their earlobe is touching their chin rest like it's gone way wrong yes and i don't know and asking them to just recreate those positions one more time i think is helpful i don't think you can possibly do too much review on this like there are kids who uh, can benefit from this every single time and when i taught fourth grade for that hot second um we did this every single rehearsal through the first semester even as kids were mm. pretty functional we mentioned this briefly in the first episode there are a thousand ways to do this and everyone feels really strongly that their way is the right way i think addressing the problems as they come up regardless of how you've set them up is useful so like as you're doing your statue of liberty and having kids um bring their hands over i could see a way where like their elbow might end up too too far back and so you have to figure out how to help them swing that and i think everything is just addressing it as you go regardless and i know we said we weren't going to talk about equipment but just because this does vary all my kids use a shoulder rest, mm -hmm. um, you know, sponges. I know, or what do you, what are your kids? Uh, I feel very strongly about this. And also I think it's going to show both of our privilege, but I'm very, very, very adamant about shoulder rests versus sponges. Yeah. And I know that that doesn't work yeah, for everyone. I and I know that that's an obnoxious thing to say. I think everybody's got a different opinion, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what we use. All right. How about cello? All right. So cello. And again, prefacing this with, I am by trade a violist. So um, I had to learn this all in the string classroom. 
Um, cellos, uh, for our middle school program, we use straps, um, the straps that attach to the chair uh, instead of a donut or a rock stop. In our high school program, we use donuts, which I think um, allows a little bit more flexibility. I like the straps for middle school, partially because um, most of the time, if a cello looks weird, you can just ask them to shorten the strap and that physically stops them from being able to put their donut in the wrong spot. For straps, I always put them left hand, uh, sorry, on the left front leg, and then we play a little bit with the angle. There's a lot of negotiation also with space and the stand and having a stand partner and trying to find the right angles that work there. The main things that I'm looking for are that their CPEG is behind their left ear. So that's going to tell me, generally speaking, that they're in the right spot. It gets tricky also because there can be a lot of angle differences. Most likely, it just means that their end pin is either too long or that their strap is too long. But because there's so many different points that you can play with, I find the cello setup to be like one of the most challenging things. You'll see kids who like look like their cello is like nearly horizontal. So I think if we're setting the kid up to be um, sitting up straight with their back straight and their CPEG is behind their ear, that's at least two solid checkpoints that you can look for. Um, from there also, the main setup thing that I start to think about is making sure that they've got their C, uh, C left hand with their can of Coke um, or their can of LaCroix uh, ready to go, even, even as part of posture and position. I think if you ask them to think about that C hand even before they're putting any fingers down, that's going to change a lot of it. I think otherwise you can end up with terrible position from the start. One other thing of note is that those wanger chairs that have the little dip in them, the musician chairs that we all use mm. or that we are lucky to have in our programs, they actually, I think, are challenging for beginning cellists, especially beginning cellists with shorter legs, because we're asking them to sit in the middle um, or away from the back of the chair. And that means that they're actually angled downward with or their butt angles downward into the middle of that dip. So sometimes um, I will actually have very beginning cellists like scoot even more forward or do the opposite where they sit back. Wenger technically makes these padded cello chairs that we we have a couple of them in our high school program. So sometimes a kid with really long legs will, will we will have them sit there instead. Or if a kid is really struggling with the like dip down, we'll put them put them in those chairs. Um, to be perfectly honest, we have those chairs and we used to identify which kids needed them and set them up that way. It's unrealistic when you're moving between first and second period in five minutes, but uh, we did make them available for kids if they wanted to use them. Are those the chairs that have like the the bubble back thing? They're like the the back of it kind of pops out. Um, we don't have that kind. It's just like a thicker padding. It honestly looks like a like a conference chair, like oh. what you would sit on at a um conference. Okay, they're thicker padded, and I think their legs might be slightly longer, or at least the padding just makes it taller. Okay, I remember we used to, the when I taught in Massachusetts, we called them cello chairs, and I didn't teach orchestra at that time, so I didn't know why. Other than that's, I wasn't sure if it was that the cellist needed to, I don't know, something with their back that they needed to focus on. It's possible, but, also, and I think as they get taller, some of them do sit farther back in their chair. Like the setup that we talked about is kind of what I say for everyone, and we're all going to learn it this way. And then as you become a professional player, not every professional player plays like this, and we'll show them examples. Um, like let's look at how Yo-Yo Ma sits in Yo-Yo Ma's chair, and like mm. we'll 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 go through and look at these examples and say okay but we're all going to learn it this way first and then actually you can um modify when you become a professional <laughs> <laughs> there is that you have to know the rules before you can break them kind of thing exactly yeah so it's funny i don't use rock stops or straps in my classroom and the reason why is because we have carpet yeah but what i do like about the strap is it does codify for them this distance from their chair that they once they find good setup 
if they're using their own personal strap or, you know, we're providing a strap, that's something I might look into because I do find one of the hardest things is establishing honestly, how far away does the end pin go? Mm -hmm. And then from there deciding the height so that their seat peg gets behind their ear. I like it for a visual marker. Exactly. Like you're saying. Yeah. I have the kids stand, um, at the beginning with their legs up against the front of their chair so they can kind of feel the chair behind them and i have them hold their arms straight out with their cello in the ground just yeah not directly in front of the left foot but toward the left foot not right center and then i have them sit and bring the cello to them and that's kind of my end pin like marker for them but i do like the idea of the straps and most of the rest of what i do is similar to you particularly just when the left hand comes up that it's in that really round can of choose your own beverage for sure and i think there's this whole world that i'm kind of ignoring talking about which is about knees and also to be perfectly honest boobs both knee and boobs affect cello placement and like you have to actually negotiate is your boob going to go above or below your instrument on uh, where it's touching your chest and then also is your uh, knee position going to be fully outside like where 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 does it feel comfortable and that is going to become more relevant as we start to do long bow things but i think from the very beginning just having them bring the cello to them and have it rest on them that's the important thing mm -hmm. i do think that that perched seating and again many cello players will probably correct me on this but i, I do think that perched seating helps to at least make one grounding point where the cello can meet them. I think when you're adding in the variation of like the six places you could be sitting in your chair, that makes it that much more challenging. Yeah, that consistency is super helpful. Um, the other thing I'll have the kids do uh, is when they bring the instrument down, I will have them balance it between their knees and do like the cello hug. Yeah, that's a classic. And just kind of rock back and forth. And just to just so that the position feels comfortable and not overly tense. Um, and it also gives them that balance point between the knees. So that, that's what I do. No, that's a that's a very classic uh, cello thing. You're reminding okay. me about that. <laughs> okay, I, it, to be honest, it's been a long time since I've I've done like a full setup of, of everyone from the very beginning. I teach a couple beginning kids uh, at the beginning of every sixth grade year, but yeah, I haven't done it in a while. I think a common thread of what we're saying also is just reducing tension, right? Yep. By default, string playing is so uptight, so challenging, and you can cause injury really, really easily and really quickly. Yep. So I think what we're trying to do is, and kids get so discouraged if they feel really tired after playing for five minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's so hard. I, I feel like with so much of what we do, like when you look at someone, you know if they look right or wrong, but so many people, myself included, they just lack that awareness of how they look. That's why mirrors are so helpful for home practice. I used to do a bathroom assignment in the first weeks of sixth grade. Yeah, yeah, yeah I love that. <laughs> I, I, I know some teachers will buy hand mirrors and put them on stands for every kid. Yeah. I have done um, the full size mirror. And then when we're doing like station work of some kind, like mm -hmm. you have to go and figure that out. We can do pair work also where someone takes a picture of you and then you uh, comment on your own posture and position. Yeah. Okay. I feel like we're going from familiar to even less familiar string bass. String bass, I think, is such a funny thing for people who are either coming from high strings or coming from no string background. To be perfectly honest, I started teaching orchestra in 2012. I learned to play the bass and understood anything about the bass in, say, straight up 2015, 2016. For three to four years, I did not successfully teach the bass in any capacity. So I'm coming from a high strings perspective of not at all knowing what to look for. 11 years in now, I have a, a little bit more of what to look for, but I'm still by no means a bass specialist. I am of the camp that you can play both seated or standing. I think it really depends on the height of the student, the leg to torso ratio, 
the arm length. I think that affects it a lot. Um, and so I'm always going to work with each student individually to figure out what happens. Granted, I usually provide a stool of some kind for everyone during the time that they're not playing so that they don't stand for the full 80 minute period. Oh, I should do that. Yeah, I, I think it does become tiring for them to uh, stand the entire time. I give them a chair and then they have to like put their instrument up and down. It's just like a waste of time. I should be giving every kid a stool. The stool is a game changer um, and it does not need to be a fancy wanger base stool. To be perfectly honest, that's what we have at the high school. At our middle school, we used to have the um, hardware store like bar stool. And that I actually think is both more portable and for some kids more realistic. It's about getting the right height. So bringing a couple different heights is useful. Yeah. I have some of the um, science lab chairs that they didn't notice disappeared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Classic. That actually, you can adjust the bottom of the height, and the kids are used to sitting on those, too. That's great. Yeah, anything anything adjustable is game-changing. There are You could spend a lot of money on base tools. You can get um, the, the kind that uh, you can adjust both the angle of the seat also and also the, the height. I think having a stool for them to sit on during rehearsal affects their mood, <laughs> which I think is really useful. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of playing seated or standing, I generally start all of my middle school kids standing. I think when they don't yet know um, uh, how to balance the instrument uh, for them, I think, or against them, that gives them a chance to know what it's supposed to feel like. Then as they figure out that basses can sit, they learn to do so but that's like it's honestly an entirely different instrument when they're playing seated um for the record also my kids who are playing seated are playing in that fully perched position so they they have one foot resting up and they've got um their butt is touching the seat but they are they could stand up with very little effort from where they are perched and you have you have the left foot up on the stool and the right foot almost around. always there's like all kinds of fun tricks and tips that i've seen for smaller bases um like yoga blocks or mm. other things that um, they literally make little like a guitar foot stool oh, yeah is really useful also for that so if you've got that around um i've used those before i'm a really short-legged person so i like having um, one leg up like that and i need a much shorter stool because my other um leg is not long enough to hit the top of most of those stools. I like um, in, in the bass lessons that I've taken, playing seated has changed the game for me. Both seated and German bow completely changed the way that I play the bass. So um, I teach by default at the start standing and French bow. And then there are lots of ways. Uh, I, I've done that mostly because that's what we have. Like we've often had five bases and three stools. And so we're all going to learn standing. Right. Um, but we uh, I think there's lots of ways that you can make the base more comfortable. For base, really what it is, I'm starting everyone the same way, and then I'm doing a lot more individual work than I am with everyone else. Um, we didn't mention this, but for cello, like I will do, and uh, we do like a, a doctor's appointment early on where we're like, we do a one-on-one -on -one check in of like, let's uh, diagnose what's happening. Like, where are you feeling tension? What is it like after you play for 10 minutes, what hurts? And we do that with bass, but just like in an ongoing basis, especially also in middle school where they are gonna leave in June at um, four foot, nine and then they're going to come back at 511 and it, it so completely true. changes the way that they play um checkpoints for base what i'm looking for is that their left hand still has that round uh can of whatever it is you're drinking and that their eyes are uh sorry their hand is generally at their eye level um that's generally how i know things are going to work the main takeaway from all of my base excavation is that that base needs to be perfectly balanced without your other hand holding it there, um, without your left hand holding it there. So they should be able to find a balance point against um, either their hip or their uh, 
yeah, it's mostly their hip, I guess, but they should be able to find that balance point. And same thing as the cello, they're bringing the instrument towards them. They should be able to balance the instrument without their hands holding onto it. It's a very challenging thing for people to do, but that guarantees that they're bringing the instrument towards them and they're not walking towards their instrument. I think I struggle with that balance point part because the bass is not sitting parallel to their body you know it's not facing front with them there is this slight angle to it and finding that spot i i do teach the hip against the base for it to feel comfortable like they're not having their left hand's job is not having to support the base from falling over if they are using their left hand to catch it that's a guarantee that they're going to get forearm tension right from the beginning yeah. so i think i actually yeah. don't move on until they can do that and then they have to keep proving it too it's not just like a one-time thing so like for example, while the C peg is, or sorry, while the C string is being tuned for violas and, and cellos, I trained my basses to make that the time that they check to make sure their position is there because it's silent. They can do it while they are hmm. tuning that string, but they can check to make sure that the position is there. And then I will do like a visual check-in of like everyone let go and we'll do one by one while the C pegs are being tuned. That's just like a tiny little, little check-in. Okay. I definitely need to reinforce that with my kids because I, I just think I haven't done a great job of it. In terms of, you talked about the left hand kind of being at eye height. Do you use like the nut of the instrument as another checkpoint in terms of height here? Yeah, that can definitely scroll, be one too. I, I think what gets tricky is often, and this is a real, realistic public school teaching thing, more that more often than not, a kid is playing the wrong size bass. And hopefully that's something you're able yeah. to fix at your schools. I was honestly never able to fix it in the 10 years that I had on my middle school. We could never get it to work out so that every kid had the right size bass. Um, and because of that, there's a lot of extra adjustments, right? So a kid might be playing a bass that's actually way too wide for them. Um, and we've lowered the end pin all the way. And then so that's gonna completely change their balance. Oftentimes they're playing a different size bass at home than they are at school because we weren't able to get the right things. I mean, it's amazing that we're able to get them an instrument at home. It also realistically is um, probably causing more issues. <laughs> so like for me, the bass has always just been the wild west. And the other thing is the proximity to the conductor means that like I am catching scrolls of violins that are close to me and helping to fix that way more than I am back there. And I'm, I'm a big walker. I walk around during rehearsal all the time, but even then, like you have to actively go back there and help each kid adjust each part of their body each time. And it's just, it doesn't happen as much as it should. It's actually really helpful to hear that some of those base sizing things are a challenge for you too, because I'm in the midst of that, of trying to swap instruments out from eighth graders to provide to sixth graders. and. <laughs> I restrung a cello because I don't have another quarter size bass. So this kid has something to play. Uh, yeah, I, mixed results um, so far. I, I I want another quarter size. And then the other thing is like you know on bass, depending on a kid's arm length, for them to actually get their bow eventually, you know, between the end of the fingerboard and the bridge. Yeah, when we actually talk about that, yes, that's a huge part of setup. Yeah, um, the pendulum swing of the right arm and the making sure that's the right height. That actually I think depends. Yeah, it makes it so that if their left hand's in the right spot, there's a high chance if they're playing the wrong size bass, their right hand's not in the right spot. Um, mm -hmm. I have not succeeded at this. So really, if anyone is listening to this and has succeeded <laughs> at it, please send me an email. I would love to chat. Um, I I will say that by high school, one of the one of the products of both of my uh, both of their teachers, so myself and my co-teacher, are not bass specialists. And the product of that is that we have these bass sections that are so wonderfully helpful to each other and so wonderfully independent. The like two kids that do take private lessons on bass, like share all their tips and tricks. Yeah. And I think like I've always loved my bass sections because they are so much more <laughs> independent and helpful to each other than some of my other sections. Yeah. Like I, it's also just the nature of kids who have chosen bass. Yeah, there's this cool camaraderie.
Oh yeah. Do you start kids on bass or do your beginning instruments in fifth grade, do they get to start bass? So in the two years I've had the program, no sixth graders have come in on bass. So I've started all the bases in sixth okay. grade. I do know that at the elementary programs, there are a small number of bases that exist in the district. I don't know how or when kids like get to move into that. I think if you were to ask me if I were making decisions, I don't think I would have any of those fifth graders on base. Okay. I, th I think I would probably, I don't know. I think I would probably have them somewhere else and then move in sixth grade. Maybe part of that's an equipment thing. Um, Cause I think that's really tricky and it's only one day a week, which is really tricky. And just, you know, when you start talking strings, uh when you start talking like left it hand, makes just it harder finger for the geography director. yeah so different for sure yeah, so different i'm sure there are bass specialists who would feel really strongly otherwise yeah we did a thing where for for years and years our bass players or kids who wanted to play bass started on cello and then switched in sixth grade a couple years ago um, we have a one of our elementary string teachers is a bass specialist which is phenomenal for the kids Good. and she wrote a grant to get a whole bunch of quarter size basses for our fifth grade program okay. and so now we've been getting kids who started in fifth grade what it means is you end up having more bass players in the program overall, right? Because there are there's always a reluctance to switch in sixth grade after they've played whatever. And so it's it's going to be huge for our program, I think, in the long term. Um, that's coming from the place where um, a grant was granted to allow us to do that. And also that um, someone in the fifth grade beginning strings team has that content knowledge. So those are like two big barriers to, I think, other programs. I will say that I think starting a kid on bass, while it means that you have to learn different fingerings and say different fingerings, I think that can be really game changing. Mm -hmm. um, it means that they have that innate pride in, in being a bassist. It means that they're super excited about it from the start. I think there's a benefit there for sure. So we talked about all of the the things we try to go about, but we, we, we already mentioned this, I guess, a little bit earlier about the practicing part of it. For sure. I think that it can be easy for teachers to say, like, I told them all the things to do one time. We did it on the first day and now they know. <laughs> And and I think most of us, especially those of us experienced, know that's just not the case. They just have to go through the muscle memory of it over and over again. You said this about your fourth graders. I do this with my sixth graders. We, in the first two weeks, there is no day that we don't practice getting into position more than at least five times. And the first couple of days, it's like 10 to 15 times of doing it right. And then we'll have the kids pair up by stand partners and, you know, the insides will watch the outside player, the outside will watch the inside player and they give each other feedback on that. And it's just a constant reinforcement of it before we do anything else, because like so much of what we do, repetition is so necessary to actually establish the thing. Them hearing the words is really not setting them up for a lot of success. Them going through the actions and then getting feedback on the actions, that's where they're starting to build, I think, the actual habit of the thing. This is where you and I, I think, are perfectly aligned in terms of our ideologies in the classroom. I think about what is the experience for the student in my classroom? And the, the number one thing that comes to mind is that I don't want them to just come in, play their music and leave. I want every student to be heard in some capacity and to give their opinion in every class period. Realistically, that doesn't mean that I'm gonna hear them say everything, but it means that they're gonna share out with their stand partner. They're gonna give active feedback. They're gonna get feedback. And that I, I am very, very into the pair work. You will always hear me start every class with a stand partner thing. Uh, and I think, while we want to reinforce these things as much as possible, it can become 
just background noise to them if you're always saying the same words, right? So I think we're always, you and I both, thinking about like, how can I make this more fun for kids? How can I make sure that they're actually engaged in the process? Um, just a couple things that come to mind. Number one, um, at any point, the violins and violas should be able to stand up and actually, honestly, the cellos also. Um, and so with younger kids, uh, I will have a secret code word. And when I say the secret code word anytime in the period or even three weeks later, that means that they should be able to stand up. And then the last person to stand up uh, we're not punishing them, but it's like you want to be the first one to stand up and remember what that means. It should also mean that you are sitting in a way that is so perched that you could stand up with no problem. We'll also we'll do like section competitions of like who remembers this thing. And the more fun you can make boring posture things, the better. Um, in terms of repetition, I, I I literally every single time we tune in high school will remind people that we're going to put both feet flat on the ground. I say it every single time. I say it no matter what. And uh, for crossed legs, I I I. I'm reminding kids in 11th grade who have been in my program since sixth grade like it's you can't you can't say it enough times. <laughs> um, let's see uh, a couple other things I always have kids grade each other's posture so uh, I tell them like hey when we are doing our progress check posture is a, a thing i'm always going to take a look at so right now if you were to um, give some feedback on your stand partners posture what are the things that you would say to them sometimes in a younger student uh, class three four weeks in i will say hey i'm actually not going to teach teach the start of class today i'm going to ask someone else to say all the things that you think I would say. And that's like a test for them. Like, do what are what are the things they can pair it back that they've heard? And then having them come up with it. And then they get to play teacher and I, I address them by their last name and they think it's funny. Um, anytime I ask a student to be a teacher, side note, I always take their instrument and be them. And that's mostly just my own comedy work. Oh, I like that. <laughs> also then just means I play cello next to someone else and I might learn what they're what they're doing and hear what they're playing and be like, oh, actually you've been, your strings are wildly out of tune and I didn't catch that. So I, I, I do a lot of that kind of stuff. That's also for when you have a kid come up and conduct the class, they love that. We do a whole bunch of silly things also, and we'll talk more about this with left hand setup coming up, but in terms of the actual posture, the elbows are really important um, with upper strings in particular, um, where we get, uh, I always do a really serious talk with my sixth graders, like there has been an epidemic. It is coursing through the sixth grade and glued elbow syndrome is is the name of the disease and your left hand your left elbow has become glued to your rib cage and i need to help you fix it and like we do a whole like doctor ceremony of like oh like look it's your stand partner suffering and it's <laughs> very silly uh if i have to say it a whole bunch of times i have this infant sized inner tube this is maybe something that you can use Knowles um actual gear Ooh. but i have an infant sized inner tube um the kind that doesn't go over your head but it like um can it has a hole in it so or a, a split in it so you can just like strap it oh on. yeah i've got a couple of those yeah those are awesome yeah yeah you know what i'm talking about um for kids who it's like a constant issue this doesn't actually solve the problem but it, it um brings your point to light for kids who constantly play with their elbow glued i will just put the inner tube on them and then so they have to put the thing realistically it doesn't do anything because then they'll just rest their elbow on the inner tube but it draws enough attention to the to the problem that it's funny and it's not a punishment like they think it's hilarious when the zebra inner tube comes and uh, attaches itself to them. The common thread in all of this is repetition. The other common thread is like, how can we make this more fun? Yeah. Because it's not useful to be like, until everyone's posture looks good, we won't start. Like that's not helpful to them and we're making it as engaging as possible. And the whole principle behind this is they're engaging each other, right? They're holding each other accountable to, I want my stand partner to succeed. I wanna make sure that our stand and our section looks great. So many wins and there are so many ways to make 
that kind of review engaging for the kids. And then it's, it's again, we talked about this last episode, it's kid focused. Like you do provide the framework for them, but they're really the ones who are holding themselves accountable and learning from one each other. And every single time that a kid gives feedback to another student, they immediately become aware of that own habit in their own playing, which is so powerful for them. It's the age old, like you could, the best way to learn is by teaching it, right? Yeah. So like when they have to explain what they need, what their stand partner needs to do better. And I, I want to preface this also that that comes with a ton of culture, building, yeah, right? You yeah. can't just set them to do that if they, because if they're like, your posture sucks, like that's not helpful. <laughs> There's lots of norms that we've already established by this point. I just to, I guess, to echo some of that stuck elbow syndrome you're saying, I teach this on all instruments except for bassoon in the band world there are no two parts of your body that touch one another that's usually how it goes is that every part of your body is kind of independent from one another and they're just you know they have to think like about all the parts of their body i guess their toes might be touching but we don't talk about that no but i like that awareness of like um i think so much especially of middle school is like there's no awareness of where their limbs are and that's why you have to have them look like oh what does this look like and string playing versus um band instruments so much of it is like it's uncomfortable to look yeah. you have to like i tell them you have to cross your eyes to look at where that contact point is cello is like figure out where your neck's doing i don't know it's just it's such a different beast totally I know that my own awareness at 35 of my own body is still, <laughs> when I dance, I think I look awesome. And then I see a video of myself and I'm like, Ooh, too much confidence, not enough skill. <laughs> not so uh, This is completely off topic, but you know, when you get um, wedding pictures back from someone's wedding yes, and you like yes. thought you were having a great time uh, and then you look at that and you're like, wow, that's going to be in your memories forever. I know, it's good to know. I know. Please don't choose that one <laughs> for your wedding, for your photo album. Oh, God. <laughs> Okay, so we talked uh, a lot about, a little bit about the left hand, but mostly about just instrument position. So moving to the left hand, there are, as with most of the topics we'll be discussing, uh, probably a lot of different directions to come at this. I know for me, in year two, most of what I have is is not things that I created for myself. It's stuff that I'm borrowing and or straight up stealing from others. Absolutely. So I know with um, violin and viola, I talk a lot about like how the thumb connects to the first finger. Um and I actually show them, I'll like have them put their thumb and their first finger together and say like, do you see your thumb knuckle? And do you see your first finger knuckle? And which one is closest? To try and just make this connection across from one another, that those two are kind of going to be, they're going to be friends. And we draw the, this is not my creation. I think I took this from uh, Carl Butz's book, um, The Magic X, which is right on that. I call it the base knuckle. I don't know if it actually is the base knuckle, but that bottom knuckle right across from your thumb knuckle on your index finger. And we draw a little X um, with a pen. And the joke about why it's a magic X is that if you wash it, it disappears. <laughs> yeah, that is their contact point for uh, where the fingerboard meets the neck of the instrument or, or kind of typically where the black part of it meets the wood part um, in their minds, even though they're both made of wood. And then directly across from that, is the the thumb and we will move that up and down the neck together so that those two yes. are almost always connected with one another and it's what we're trying to not do in establishing those is that these have to squeeze the neck because their job is never to support the neck it's always just to kind of support where your hand is on the neck because your 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 head is and your shoulder are supporting the actual neck itself what, what about you talking about thumb and just where we would go particularly for violin and viola 
Love everything you just said. Um, definitely for violin and viola, we do uh, a lot of really similar things. Uh, this is really, I established it when we're starting to talk about shifting, but I really think that from the very beginning, we should always establish that the thumb and the first finger go together. We put on a very, um, I used to call it a wedding ceremony, and then I realized that that might be triggering for kids whose parents are uh, in separate households and whatnot. So instead of having your thumb and your first finger get married, we started having a friendship ceremony, and the thumb would tell the second finger all the things that likes about the second finger or sorry the first finger uh, and then the first finger tells the thumb all the things it likes about it and they um, decide that they're going to become best friends and then we do a lot of like oh moving up and down the fingerboard together we're going to be inseparable like you know those friends at school who are and then we'll show them oh what does it look like when oh all the drama first finger left thumb we do a lot of like uh, <laughs> kind of stupid stuff oh my gosh. uh it's it's very funny um i have gone above and beyond with my friendship ceremonies there used to be like um you would draw a little BFF necklace on the thumb and it's, it's a lot, a lot wow. of uh, so much backstory, uh, but we, you really want to make it come alive that like, Hey, these two things are collected. We'll talk about the invisible string and the invisible string happens on the top of the fingerboard, mm. but there's still this cavern on the bottom so that we're not holding, um, any tension over there. And I should be able to come through and double check that I can see through the gap underneath. Yeah. And so you can have your stand partner check that cause they're sitting at exactly the right angle for that. Um, even when we're just beginning, I think establishing, I love that you said that you have them shift up and down the instrument with that. Everything we just said with the thumb and first finger would be for violins and violas. For cellos and bass, we do that invisible string between the second finger and the thumb, and we have that same ceremony at the same time. So then and we are making this little uh, circle over here, and we're saying, oh, there's this invisible string, and yours goes through your instrument, through the fingerboard. They're actually always connected until we get to the point where we're going to start to separate them. But we're talking just from fourth, uh, first to fourth. Uh, and that allows us to keep those two things together. Establishing that from the very beginning, I think makes it so that when we do talk about shifting, we are not leaving the thumb back behind. Yeah. They know what the breakup means when, when we talk about yeah, that. Yeah. Something that I, I've heard, and I do try to bring some awareness is it, with that thumb on cello and bass, the actual contact point of the thumb is like, a, is a little different, honestly, just because of where it is in relationship Ooh, to their yes. head. Thank you for so I like to think of the side of the thumb. Like if I were turning my, the inside of my thumb, the one that's facing my index finger, that is more contacting the back of the neck than the actual like flesh of the the fingerprint on cello. And then on bass, I find that it's more the actual fingerprint itself. I yeah, that's that's a good nuance. My main concern at that starting point is that their thumb is rounded. Mm -hmm. um, you will see tons of cello players. If you walked to the back of your cello section, guaranteed more than seventy five percent of them are playing with a flexed thumb like that, and that the inside fingerprint is what's touching the the, or maybe even the inside of the first knuckle is touching the the cello. That's going to immediately cause tension in the forearm, and so like. Uh, the first thing we always go back to is can of coke check your stand partners can you make sure that you can touch their bumpy thumb and bumpy thumb works actually for both hands so that's a useful like general concept yeah. but yeah i think with with kids and that are just starting i think the main concern is that i want their thumb to be relaxed it doesn't have to be bent so that it's all the way out but it should never be flexed so that their uh the inside knuckle is touching those are my main concerns with them for you'll actually see that sometimes with with violins and violas too. And so if just remind them that like, oh, this means that the, the face of the thumb can't see their best friend. And yeah. so that makes it so they have to go back and look. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Just of thinking that the thumb does kind of. Yeah, the face. I don't think about the top you'll, of the you'll fingers see, that much. If you look in your sixth grade right now, guaranteed some kids are playing like this. Yeah, I, I'm picturing a lot of them right now. Um, wow, this is so <laughs> helpful. 
Um, in terms of where you begin on the fingerboard, there are a variety of different opinions. For sure. Uh, some people start up in first position. Some people start more, you know, in an upper position, maybe closer to the bout. Um, what, what do you do in your class? I have always started in first position um, for everyone, and that's because the logistics of trying to figure it out for everyone is tricky. I can definitely see, especially in a private setting, how there could be benefit from starting closer. And I think there are people who do it in a group setting as well. I just never have. You mentioned this earlier about like everything that you have learned is stolen from other people. Everything that anyone has learned is stolen from other people. Yeah, like I yeah. absolutely, I do it this way because that's the way I was taught to teach it. Yeah. <laughs> I also start in first position uh, for all the reasons that you said. In terms of some actual exercises to reinforce that, and to reinforce where their hand, you know, where their fingers are going to live above the fingerboard. Something I do, again, stolen is this swing strum where they're essentially playing left hand pizzicato, but they're not moving at all from their finger joints. It's all from the elbow and they just swing their elbow up and down to make themselves across the strings. And what I, this usually will reinforce is one connecting eventually you know, string crossings to the elbow and not to the fingers that they're not reaching with their fingers ever to cross strings, but their elbow will deliver eventually deliver their fingers to the string that they want. Um, and then the second is that their fingers are always hovering above the strings. Their fingers, so many of the kids, their fingers just like are as far away from the string as possible until yeah. it needs to come down yeah. in the string, which is inaccurate and wasted motion. So particularly for that fourth um, finger for the pinky, uh -huh. that it also forces that pinky. And the pinky is the thing that's doing the actual strumming itself. The upper fingers yep. are just living in line with it. That's a perfect exercise for all the reasons you just said. And also it establishes like, what do I actually want to be able to see and what should feel relaxed? I think that tells them like, oh, I shouldn't have tension in my forearm yep. because it's my elbow that's moving. And then we do left-hand pizzicato before we do any right-hand pizzicato. I start with the pinky on everything, but then I will move fingers and then the idea is that they can do it with all four fingers, but the other four, four fingers are not, you know, moving far away for for one. I really like that you do that fourth finger stuff. What it does, um, Pat and I can see each other. For those of you who are yeah. listening in audio, and we uh, <laughs> are doing our best to explain we're a lot trying. of the things that we are physically showing each other in an audio format, but we're aware that some of this might be tricky. One thing that I do appreciate about using that fourth finger is it keeps all those other fingers in line, right? Because yep. it's unusual that your pinky would be down and the, the rest of your fingers would be up. And so it, like, because we want to establish those good habits of efficiency and keeping things right over the strings, that makes it so that um, their pinky strength can start to grow. Yeah. I also, I talk to kids about pinky strength. We make jokes about doing pinky push-ups and making sure that our yep. left-hand pinky is just as strong as our other left-hand hands. Establishing that from the beginning is really important. For me, the thing that comes to mind when I think about left-hand setup for upper strings is this straight line from the knuckles down to the wrist. And that's a concept that's really, really challenging. You get, by default, a lot of kids who want to use the wrist to hold up their fingerboard, right? So that's going to be um, what I call, I call it serving pizza. I'm like, I don't want your pizza. Yep. I want um, the straight line. And so we'll do a couple things. Um, in the past, I have done, are you familiar with uh, ankle weights? Like the kind that yes. would wrap around your, yes. um, this is, it's mean, but um, you'll, I will use that around their hand hand and their upper wrist because then they can't bend it um, which is like it's it's more to make a point than anything it doesn't actually do anything we use it all we also use those for bow weight which we'll talk about later but i do i keep a set of ankle weights at school for that reason um another thing that i'll have them do is i will have them put down their instrument i'll have them use their right hand to actually hold their wrist and their hand in that position and then we'll we'll do the same exercise so if we were playing number five in essential elements we'll play through the fingers in time and we'll say the fingering numbers while keeping that wrist there because mm -hmm. what you'll find is as they're 
using their four or as they're using their one, their wrist wants to bend. And what I want to do is immobilize that, not in tightness, but just to let them know that that is not how we are going to do that. And it, it, it's very challenging, especially for young players who don't have the finger strength yet, that it is a weird concept because why wouldn't you want to use your wrist and try to mobilize as much as possible? Um, and I will do all of these like silly poses with them and show them like, oh, like this claw hand and this like it looks like a witch's hand. Like we're, we're, we do a lot of like, oh, we want to keep everything as relaxed and, and comfortable as possible. We talk about efficiency a lot, right? Why would we lift up our fingers only to throw them back down? We want to be able to do this thing um, really comfortably. And some of that is isolating just the left hand. In terms of that serving pizza wrist thing, um, scrunchies, when they became popular last year, became really useful because you can buy like a whole bag of scrunchies for $4 mm -hmm. on uh, jeffbezos.com. And um, <laughs> you can uh, figure out how to, uh, sorry, just by putting that scrunchie on them there, that reminds them like, oh, when I feel this fabric touching, that's something that um, is something I shouldn't be doing. Yeah. Uh, there's that whole, uh, the little mouse is very popular. Like, oh, there's a little mouse that lives in your mouse house over here and we don't want to crush the mouse. Ah, don't crush the mouse. You do what works for your students. But <laughs> I did also learn though about the scrunchie thing. I think scrunchies on hands can also mean various things in regards to um, sexual behavior in middle school. So maybe look into that before you Okay, that's that, That's good to know. I will try and get, uh, you know, gender and all neutral, whatever it is. But I think I that, that scrunchy thing, it's what a tangible and easy and sounds like inexpensive option that I could see like- Right, and you get to take it off when you can show me that yeah, you can do that yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, one other thing I wanted to say about the wrist is that while we often, um, the reason why kids are bending their wrist towards them is to hold their violin or viola up with that. You'll also then see a couple kids who do the opposite, mm -hmm. who do like a, a weird bird hand um, back towards them. And they, as much as you can say this constant line, um, you'll hear old stories about people used to tape rulers from their knuckle down to their arm, or they'd use a pencil point to make it so like a golf pencil here so they get stuck with the pencil all of those things are fine just creating as much awareness as you can i think down the line makes it so that they can keep that good form as they start to shift mm -hmm. you've heard both pat and i say this a couple times but everything that we're doing is preparing for mobilization because yeah. right? we're not always going to be here and we want to make sure that that good form stays with us the whole way through so even in those very beginning left hand exercises i always do some of those ski jumps um sliding all the way up the cello even if we're not about to play in third position i still want to do some of those pre-shifting exercises right we'll do sirens up and down and that's just to make sure that we're keeping that good form yep it's just another reminder that you know the fundamentals we're teaching at whatever level are the same fundamentals later on um, otherwise we're teaching them the wrong thing then we have to fix it so we talked a lot about what we do to try and set up the kids for good habits there are so many habits that you see that are poor habits that you're trying to develop and for most teachers you look at a kid and you know it doesn't look right Let's talk a little bit about just some of those things. Um, we talked a lot about the bent wrist being away already. We also talked about just where the instrument position is. Um, I love your your scroll reference of that being parallel for violins and violas because I find most kids that slides just to the center and it just looks like, yeah, like it's just coming straight out of their, you know, the center of their neck. Yeah, which there's a reason for that, right? It's because they want to be able yeah. to see their fingers. Yeah. Um, sorry, when I say parallel, I was actually talking about um, from the chin to the scroll, it should be parallel to the ground. Yes. That's for me, at least more about yes. the angle. Yes. Um, but this thing that you're talking about of the of it coming out of your neck, like a protrusion, um, we always have to bring that around. That also probably means that they're putting their chin in the chin rest. Less frequently, I see kids that will go the opposite direction of that, which is like they go straight out from their sh like direction of their shoulder. It's almost yeah. backwards for them. Um, but I don't see that quite as often. 
fingers flying away from the fingerboard is I see all the time. And I think now that I have that awareness of that rounded thumb, I think some of it is also connected to that, that everything is kind of splaying away splay, from that. Yeah. 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 Um, a silly one that I do is I'll have the stand partner hold their pencil up against the knuckles here while they play an exercise. Oh. So it makes it so their fingers can't go backwards. Um, yeah. so their stand partners physically holding a pencil against the left hand knuckles of the other person. Yeah. Pencil being good for two reasons that they don't have to touch each other. And then also it's long enough. I love that for violins and violas having that space between the the knuckle joint and that i don't know what this area between your that, that kind of skin that connects your thumb and your index finger is I don't know but there's, there's got i don't love skin that connects but that's what it is um that there's a window there and that if somebody were looking you know from the scroll toward them they should be able to see through that that there's a space yep. do you use any word tracks or terms in that that's a good one. Um, I use, I call it the window. Yeah, like you just I said, I will have making sure if you're, uh, making sure your stand partner can see through it sometimes. Oh, another logistic thing about this is I, when we're doing these stand partner checks, it means that there's 15 eyes on 15 players versus my eyes on 30 players. But what that means is also that we have to figure out ways for them to be able to see. Yeah. So depending on where the stand partners are standing, I'll actually ask one stand partner to stand up, walk around to the other side. And there's actually a lot of physical moving, especially cellos who are encumbered, the inside cello encumbered by their instrument can't actually see anything that's happening. Mm -hmm. So I think making sure that you're actually setting them up versus just like, look at your stand partner in air quotes. And I find with cello and bass players that thumb tends to be toward the first finger. So it's just this constant reminder sure, of that yeah. connection. I love that you mentioned like it goes through the actual fingerboard to the thumb. Um, that feels really tangible. For sure. Um, magnets is another way to think about it. Like oh, yeah. It would always follow with it. You can show them what that would physically look like with magnets. I love that. I'm a big fan of props. I love a prop to, to <laughs> illustrate my point. <laughs> so those are some of the things that, you know, I'm sure that most of you are probably seeing in your own classrooms when you look at the kids. And I think like Tiffany said, those don't just disappear after the first year. They just, they continue to need to be reviewed for a long, long, long time. So, well, this has been a wonderful discussion. To close today, we're going to have a short segment that we hope will be recurring where Tiffany and I just share some goals that we have in our own class or in our programs. And we might check in on these episode to episode to see how things are going. I know for me, we didn't talk about classroom procedures, but I procedures are so important to what we do because we work with such large groups of people. So having the organization just practically is important. I am, I think really a stickler about those things, but I will say this year, the start of my class just feels like we are getting on a moving vehicle. Um, it does not feel like we are all present in the same moment. So part of this, I think, is because our class periods, our uh, passing period used to be five minutes, and now it's four minutes. And most of the teachers love Whoa. that. Yeah, most of the teachers like that because the kids have to That's just fast. get right to their class. But for me, it's yeah. one less minute for them. And I don't want to really take another minute of instructional time. So I, I give them three minutes after the bell to get all their stuff out and to be in their seat or to be in line to be tuned. And then it should be still. And I'm finding in all my classes, it is everyone is in various states of undress at the beginning. That's what it sort of seems like. And starting from that point feels just hectic. So for me, it's it's just finding stillness before we actually begin instruction. How about you? Um, one thing on that really quick, my colleague Todd Summers starts all of his freshman band classes in darkness. He turns off the lights. I think it's the same kind of triggering of like, everyone calm down yep. and then yep. we'll start when we're ready. Um, my goal for my week, I need to figure out how to tune my whirlies. For our Midwest set, um, one of our grade two pieces, uh, actually might be grade one, is a piece by a composer named Tyler Arkari. He has a piece called Aliens in the Attic, mm -hmm. um, and it has whirlies to make the alien sounds. And the, when we tried to play with them, they were wildly out of tune. They 
they came with, uh, we ordered them from uh, Australia from that Whirly's provider and they came with little, little uh, extra parts of their PVC pipe and I need to figure out how to tune them. And that is my, that's my goal for the That week. sounds like a fun student <laughs> physics project. I think some kid needs to like math that for you and then you just slice off. It is. It's also a really fun middle school piece. I would recommend Tyler, uh, Tyler Arcari's Aliens in the Attic. It's very cute. Well, thank you so much for listening. We are going to have our next episode continuing this conversation of getting set up, but working more to establishing and reinforcing fingerboard geography and finger patterns, as well as talking a little bit about the method books that we use and how those method books support or sometimes don't support what we're doing in that area. If you want to stay up to date on our new episodes, make sure that you subscribe on whatever platform you're using to get this podcast and consider spreading the word to anyone you think might be interested. We're hoping to spread the network of shared learning as wide as we can in the string education community. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. See ya. Bye-bye.